Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. It's mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast for the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, your host of the podcast and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers is an international organization devoted to the study of the sun, moon, planets, asteroids, meteors, and comets. Our goals are to stimulate, coordinate, and generally promote the study of these bodies using methods and instruments that are available within the communities of both amateur and professional astronomers. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon, and publishes those in, with detailed reports in the quarterly publication, the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, otherwise known as the Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the Observer's Notebook, you can donate it to it via Patreon by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5 you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you will receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon.com slash Observer's Notebook. A reminder, the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers maintains many individual observing sections and programs devoted to the study of various solar system bodies and phenomenon. Each is managed by one or more coordinators that collect and study the submitted observations. If you would like to join the ALPO, you can for as little as $14 a year. For more information, you can visit us on the internet at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And now, The Observer's Notebook. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Observer's Notebook podcast. We have a special guest today, Scott Roberts. He's a former VP of Mead Instruments and currently the founder of Explore Scientific. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thanks, Tim. How are you doing? I'm great. Yourself? Great. It's an honor to be on your show, and uh, I just want to say hello to all your listeners. Oh, thank you very much. Um, Scott's uh, been involved with telescopes for a very long time, and so our topic today is going to be talking a little bit about telescopes. Why don't you give everybody a little bit of background about yourself before we get started? Well, I get started with telescope, uh, kind of serious telescope sales back in 1980. Um, I was manager of a camera shop called Oceanside Photographic Center. Uh, by the time we get through Halley's Comet, um, we had built a telescope retail shop that was probably, at the time, one of the top 50 in the country. And we renamed it uh, Oceanside Photo and Telescope, which is called OPT. I was there for uh, all in all from about 1975. I uh, worked there kind of as a teenager part-time uh, until 1986 when I was 26 years old and we had already gone through Halley's Comet. 
at that time in October, I went through, um, I had applied to Celestron and to Mead Instruments. Mead hired me the next day. Oh, and wow. uh, so I was um, with Mead for 21 years. I did everything from repair expediting to, um, you know, senior technical representative to becoming vice president of uh, national sales, uh, vice president of global brand uh, community. Uh, towards the end of my 21 years there. I did everything from web design to product development. I worked overseas making thousands of small telescopes. Um, I went to, uh, over the years, I went to hundreds of star parties. And um, so I was involved in everything from the, you know, uh, Meade's high-end telescopes to their uh, least expensive telescopes. And, um uh, you know, I, in, in 2007, when I decided to end my career at Meet Instruments, um, I uh, had kind of promised myself before I turned 50 that I would start my own telescope company or my own company, you know, and it was a telescope company, and that was Explore Scientific. So we launched that in um, – I announced it at the Astronomical League convention. I think that was August of 2008. Hmm. Um and uh, so that's uh, where we've been. I started it in my garage. Uh, that year, we did about $35,000 in uh, product sales. And last year, uh, we did about $20 million in sales. So it's been a big climb. Fantastic. Short time. So uh, I have a great team here. You know, so we, uh, we do product development. Um, our factories are in China. Uh, but uh, the way that we do this is um, our high-end product is all individually 100% inspected uh, at Explore Scientific here in Arkansas. A little bit about the move to Arkansas, I, uh, I started my business in my garage in Laguna Hills, California, uh, you know, Orange County area. Um, but uh, I had uh, sales reps out here in Arkansas, and we were kind of branching out into sports optics at that point. And so I decided that, um, you know, after going back and forth a lot, I decided that I needed to move out of my garage to commercial property. And Arkansas made a lot of sense. So, um, and a little bit more cost effective than California. Incredibly so. Yeah. And so, uh, also, you know, we were centrally located. Um, we could ship faster to, you know, East or West coast, uh, and all over the country. So, uh, it worked out very well, and it turns out that Northwest Arkansas has a great um, interest in astronomy. There's lots of amateur astronomers here, and uh, so uh, I guess that's my as quick as I can make it elevator speech. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah, we we've crossed paths a few times. Uh, most uh, I remember you mostly like from the Riverside Telescope Makers Convention in Big Bear, California. Yes. When you were with me, you were always the one giving away the huge telescope that I never won at the end oh. of the convention. Yeah. <laughs> but I did win some eyepieces from you, so that was very nice. Well, that's I good. Did that's enjoy good. that. Yeah. I, I hope everybody's had a chance to win something from us. We've given away lots and lots and lots of door prizes over the years. You know, I did it with uh, Meet Instruments, and uh, now with Explore Scientific, we keep up that tradition. So, um, you know, I believe that. Uh, 
The reason why we do that is that I believe that we need to support the community that supports us, you know. And so if a door prize uh, helps attract some attention to an event that we're at or not even at, you know, because we can't attend them all, um, you know, I, I feel um, I feel that we need to do that to whatever degree that we can, you know, so. That's great. Now, um over the years, I mean, I've seen these bumps in amateur astronomy with equipment, like with John Dobson, his big movement he had with the with the, the Dobsonian telescopes, and then with Mead and Celestron with the Schmidt Cassegrains, sure. you know, computer controlled telescopes. Now with the Imogene and Coronado with their solar telescopes. I mean, these are really huge milestones. I think along the way. What do you think? I think so too. I mean, it was. Uh... It was exciting to work with a manufacturer and actually be on the development of things like, you know, Mead's original LX200, uh, the Autostar system, um, uh, that kind of thing. I think that I think that probably the most interesting aspect to me at working at Mead was actually uh, working on the LX200 because we we were able to take a clean slate approach to uh, Schmidt-Cassegrain telescope design. Um, uh, there, there was, uh, of course, um, uh, Celestron had the CompuStar system, but the very first go-to system was actually introduced by Vix, and it was called the Sky Sensor. Yeah, I got that. Remember that? <laughs> I've okay. got it. The Sky Sen- the original Sky Sensor was actually uh, probably put out in 1984, maybe mm-hmm. something like that. Okay, and it was a it was a pretty long box, pretty thick. Pretty hard to use. <laughs> yeah, I'll say that. I've struggled through it with it. Through. I still have it on my Vixen refractor. So do you really? That's yeah. amazing. So, um, but they they did it first, and uh, you know, for amateur astronomy, there were I we saw amateur you know amateur telescope makers. They're the geniuses that they are. You know, they were making robotic telescopes a long time ago. Uh, Mead decided to get into it after they had purchased. Um, after they had purchased uh, the product called the computer-aided telescope, or the CAT. And the CAT system uh, was, in fact, um, uh, uh, developed by Mike Simmons and his group. And uh, uh, it was not a closed-loop system. That, that system did have an object library in it, hmm. but uh, you had to move the telescope, you know, uh, and it was connected with pulleys and... BEI glass encoders and stuff, and it was a very accurate system. Uh, had about eight thousand objects in its object database, and uh, could connect to a computer, um, but it didn't drive the telescope. Oh. And so, uh, you know, when Mead decided to, uh, uh, when it was repurchased back by John Diebel, who originally founded the company, it was purchased back from Harbor Group. Uh, the first product that we developed was the uh, LX200. We were already under development on a 16-inch equatorial uh, fork mount uh, for the for um, what was going to be the 16-inch LX200. But John asked uh, the company what was the first product we would develop, and you know all the employees. There was only about 60 of us at the time. We're out in the parking lot, and uh, we voted to develop the 8-inch and 10-inch LX200 at that time. Because that that telescope revolutionized amateur astronomy. I mean, it was a portable, computer-controlled telescope that, you know, one person can pack up and bring anywhere. 
that's true. I, I, when I look back on it, I, I think that it did. It's, it's not that it was not technology that couldn't be developed um, by someone else. We just happened to have done it uh, uh, first um, in that regard. You know, it was a, it was a system that had some advanced computer um, uh, control, and it used DC servo motors instead of the stepper motors. Stepper mo- motors being used on amateur telescopes back in that day uh, if you used a high-power eyepiece, you could actually see the stepping drive happen. You would see it click back and forth, and it made astrophotography impossible, okay? Um, uh, with the LX200 and its DC servo drives, it was smooth. It had uh, uh, the ability to do drive correction easily, and um, so uh, about the same time, Santa Barbara Instruments Group is starting to introduce uh, – amateur level CCD cameras and so you had guys like Jack Newton and others who are using their cameras to make some of the uh, first color um, you know it was RGB you know filtered colors uh, uh, images but they were making images uh, color images of galaxies and that type of thing and it was an exciting time because uh, the people at Santa Barbara Instruments Group uh, were very interested in the LX200 and so I went out to Santa Barbara and uh, showed them the LX200, and we made some images with their cameras. And um, so, you know, it was at that point I was, like, looking at the system going, wow, this is, this is going to really take the amateur community by storm. And it did, mm-hmm. you know. It did. That's great. Um, now, imaging, that's, are, have you been involved with that? Is there Explore Scientific? Do you have things uh... – we don't do cameras. Okay. Uh, there, you know, the amateur, the amateur, uh, uh, you know, electronic imaging market is, um, you know, really matured. There's some great companies out there making, uh, uh, you know, like ZWO and and uh, you know, Apogee came along, and and uh, of course that's been bought up. And, right. You know, so there's, but uh, companies like Santa Barbara Instruments Group are still out there. Uh, making great cameras, um, but I don't see Explore Scientific doing that. I, I want us to focus on what we do best, which is, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, getting the optics nailed for the customer, delivering uh, true diffraction limited optics, um, working on our eyepieces. Uh, the latest thing we've been doing is um, a new go-to system, which we've been working on for a while. And that, that's called the PMC-8 system. It is, um, it's a departure from what Mead and Celestron did with, with GoTo systems. Uh, Mead had put together something like 23 patents on GoTo technology, you know, and I know that, uh, uh, you know, for most companies, all this GoTo technology is a proprietary thing. They, the companies don't want to tell everybody how they're doing it. Right. Um, we've taken the opposite approach by uh, opening up the, you know, the, a lot of the source code um, to control our telescopes. I want to see the amateur community uh, develop the next go-to systems. You oh know, why, why should why should the companies, you know, uh, the, the manufacturers uh, keep this a secret lockbox thing? Why should we dictate what how you're going to do go-to? Uh, computer control. That's 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 pretty eye-opening. Interesting. Uh, what do you see for the long term 
for telescopes. Uh, you've been in it a long, long time. You've seen these bumps that I mentioned. Crystal ball. I think what I, I, think what I see, I think what I see, um, you know, if we keep following kind of what's happened in the past, you're just going to see further integration, I think, of, uh, of separate systems, you know. So now, you know, right now you kind of have an imaging system that attaches to a telescope. I, I believe what we'll see are uh, uh, telescopes that, um, you know, are integrated imaging systems. You're going to buy, it's going to be buy, like buying a camera, you know. Uh, you're not buying a sensor that you're putting into your Canon camera. It's already got its sensor in there. Hmm. And uh, maybe there's different models and it gets better and better. But I, I believe that's what we're going to see. There's going to be um, amateur astronomers that are kind of on the more or less bleeding edge of uh, robotic astronomy do remote astronomy. You know, so there's, still, there's probably, right now quite a bit of that going yeah, on. Yeah, there's quite a bit of that, but that is still kind of a, an elite kind of thing. Even in astronomy clubs, there's maybe just a few guys that are doing remote robotic uh, uh, work with their telescope. You know, for you know, m- maybe you live in uh, New Jersey suburbs, but you have your telescope in New Mexico under incredibly dark skies. You know, um, so that. I see I see that as being more commonplace where you can set up a telescope either in your backyard um, or, you know, uh, outside of town or in another country, maybe in another hemisphere, you know. So um, I think having a uh, – I think everybody still wants to control their own telescopes. There's certainly companies that will let you – control a robotic telescope we in fact have one you know that you can do that with oh really um but a lot of the robotic telescopes are set up so that you say okay i want to image uh ngc 4565 and it goes into a list and that computer turns it out and they grab the image and they send it back to you okay um i think that people still want to get their hands on the controls point the telescope you know uh, maybe focus the telescope, or you know, they, they want to get into the dials. Please don't and... take focusing away from us. <laughs> <laughs> I want to touch my telescope. I want to put my eye to the eyepiece still. <laughs> Even if it's a thousand miles away, I still want to touch it. I want to still make the adjustments. Yeah, and, uh, yeah I want to learn the skills of being uh, uh, someone that handles a telescope. You well, know, that's the thing. I, I, I'm, I direct the uh, ALPO training program. Yeah, and it's based upon sketching. You know, putting your eye right. to the eyepiece and making a drawing of what you see. Yeah. And you know, recently I've had more students come in and say, well, I want to learn imaging. And I'm like, well, this is observing. You know, this is not mm-hmm. imaging. And it, it's I lose some because I'm not going to teach them how to image Jupiter and Saturn. The, you know, for, for me, look, putting my eye to the eyepiece makes you a better observer. Well, you're right. It does. And drawing what you see... You know, I, I've done that before myself, and I noticed that I would draw details that, at first glance, I couldn't see. Right. You know, and I'm looking down, and I'm going, okay, was that real or not? And then I would compare that to a photograph, and I go, yeah, that's that particular faint feature is real, you know. So um, I think it makes you an incredibly better observer, you know, and that is important. Um, the astrophotography part, you know, I, I mean, you can't really deny uh, the uh, attraction for someone to do that because the camera can certainly get down to levels that we could never see. You know, oh, the the imaging, the post processing. I mean, there's a Saturn image floating around the internet right now, taken with an amateur telescope. That it it 
you know, it, it rivals the Hubble <laughs> telescope. It's mind blowing. It is mind blowing. It, it is. It is. It's. But it's. It's. It's like taking over five minutes with seventy five thousand images stacked and processed and all that kind of stuff. So right. it's what you can do with a rev- relatively you know moderate sized telescope and an imager. I just I'm starting to to- toy with one now because I've been asked you know to mm-hmm. look mm-hmm. into it and it's I'm amazed at what I can do. Amateur astronomers uh, always seem to break the boundaries of what they, you know, if you say, okay, well, you know, I mean, gosh, back in the, back in the seventies, you know, there's no way you could have done an image better than the 200 inch, you know, it's just, it would have been impossible when the first CCD cameras came available in the 1980s, they immediately blew that away. Okay. Um, so, uh, and, you know, and then, and then, okay, we found exosolar planets, right? And how big of a telescope and what techniques did that take? Now you have, you have guys that are detecting exosolar planets with four inch telescopes, right. you know? So, you know, I think that once, once we learn how to see, how to observe, how to record data, um, and learn these processes, you know, uh, you know, God bless that, that, um, uh, professional, uh, astronomers and amateur astronomers have such an incredibly close relationship you know it's it's uh it allows someone that wants to go beyond uh just uh you know the aesthetic or the beauty of looking at the sky or photographing beautiful images to really being a contributor you know so if if you want that you know of course the alpo does it probably best right oh i i think we do i think we do yeah now, what, just step back. What got you into astronomy? You said you got you started working for uh, the um, o- OTC. Was that? Yeah, it was called Oceanside Photographic Center. Uh, and when that you was were back a teenager. Initially, in 1975, when I was about 15 years old. Were you Were you an amateur astronomer at the time? Uh, at the time, no. I, I was. I well, I, I'm take. I took a hiatus. Okay. You know, we we grew up in the uh, in the '60s. We saw mm-hmm. uh, the Apollo mission and and all of that. And I can still remember. I mean, just like vividly burned in my mind uh, watching my you know our black and white television and watching you know Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walk on the moon. Right. Um, that that was in '69. By 1970, I wanted a telescope so bad. You know, I'd been pestering my parents since I was probably seven or eight years old to get a telescope. And um, so in 1970, they in fact did buy me a $15 uh, 40 millimeter Kmart focal refractor with a, with a push-pull zoom eyepiece. I have that telescope on my countertop here in my office here at Explore Scientific. Do you really? It's, it serves as a reminder to me of my initial interest, why I got interested, and you know, although that 40 millimeter is truly a horrible telescope, okay, by, by you know, maybe not by Galileo's definition, it probably still would have blown away Galileo's telescope because <laughs> I've used replicas of his telescope, and I'm going, how in the world did anybody use these things? But this telescope, um, when, I, when I finally recovered it, and, uh, you know, I... I I don't have the original one because I tore mine apart, okay, mm-hmm. to learn how it worked. I took all the lenses apart and stuff. <laughs> that, that in itself, I think, uh, lended, you know, I, when I think of that thread, how did that take me to where I got involved in manufacturing and stuff? I think about that, and I was just absolutely fascinated by how the optics could produce an image, 
you know. And so um, I found another one. I started thinking about it one day. And I go, gosh, I wonder if I could ever find it again, you know, that same exact model. And I got so lucky. I went on eBay on that same day I was thinking of it. I found the model. And I bought it for $35. I put up $200 minimum bid on it. (laughs) There's going to be a lot of people that's going to want this. Actually, I'm the only guy that wants it. And uh, when I got it, Tim, it was brand new in the box. It's still the Kmart tag on it. It is pristine condition, but it was, uh, so I took it out and I took the covers off and I looked at the moon, the same thing I did when I was a kid. And the, I felt this rush of seeing the moon for the first time, just briefly. And I go, okay. It was kind of like this flashback that happened. That's very good. Yeah, I, I think of amateur astronomers differently. Like car guys never forget their first car. Amateur astronomers will never forget their first telescope. Because it's what brought you to the hobby. True, true. So I'm very, very grateful uh, for this little uh, modest telescope with its unadjustable viewfinder that has no (laughs) optics in it. Uh, It was just a pipe, you know. You have have finder Uh, scopes that are much better. Yeah, and and so it's it is it's wobbly mount and all of that. So I'm very I'm very grateful to my parents who who did that and coddled my interest and uh, because. My the voyage uh, of what has happened through learning about amateur astronomy, through doing public outreach, through working with manufacturers and all the rest of it. The you know the the comet discoveries I've met, the astronauts I've met, um, you know the experiences I've had. I, I just can't you know I'm just so incredibly grateful. True, true. Well, talk a little bit about Explore Scientific a little bit more. Give us a sure. Well, Explore Scientific um, uh, starts out, of course, I told you, $35,000 out of my garage. Uh, very modest um, uh, business. We, But the thing I realized is in 2008, and I didn't know this was going to happen in 2008, but, you know, the economy, uh, uh, you know, uh, went, you know, took a huge dive. And my competition at this point is having to cut employees cut marketing cut 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 you know to to get through this bad time i on the other hand uh you know was able to do some uh marketing i was able to travel and do events and uh so although my company was very small at the time uh i think i appeared as a much bigger company than what i was you know so and because of um you know, all the great friends that I'd made over the years and everything, there were a lot of doors open to us to uh, uh, get our products placed um, in important specialty retailer stores, you know. So they, they immediately allowed me to uh, start selling to them. Uh, and uh, so because uh, our company is partnered with a manufacturer, okay, we're not just a distributor, but we're we're partnering with a manufacturer. That that uh, manufacturer, which is called JOC, uh, JOC availed to me all of their engineering staff, um, uh, you know, their QA staff and everything. And so I was able to go in, and it felt like the old days of Meet Instruments. I was able to go into the factory. I was able to work directly with the engineers. I was able to define, uh, you know, how we would do quality control, uh, what that quality would be like. And all the rest of it, and um, 
it turns out that they have some incredibly talented lens designers there. And so we were able to develop hyper-wide eyepieces almost from the get-go. We, we uh, developed 100-degree um, eyepieces. And initially we were, we were accused of, of copying uh, our competitor, Teleview, at that time. Um, but when you develop an eyepiece, you have to your, – your lens designs are defined a lot by the glass types you can use. Okay. And, uh, uh, I was not able to use the same glass types that Teleview has in their eyepieces, so I had to I had to work with Chinese manufacturers, glass type glass manufacturers, and that's how we developed our systems. We were inspired by his designs, um, uh, but uh, in the same way that I, I imagine that um, uh, Teleview was inspired by uh, earlier designs by Skidmore and. Uh, you know, some of the guys that did military eyepiece designs and stuff. Um, uh, we did go ahead and push the envelope and make eyepieces that uh, that uh, no one else had designed before, like our 120-degree 9-millimeter eyepiece. You know, oh, my goodness. World's widest field eyepiece right now uh, in production. I was inspired to do so because I learned that Carl Zeiss back in wartime, I'm thinking it's World War II, had developed a 120-degree eyepiece for targeting. Now, I was really hoping I could see some drawings of that. Uh, I was hoping that, uh, that I could find a sample of it somewhere, you know, and, and right. but I could never find anything. I just heard that it was made, you know. So, uh, so we're making eyepieces in China, and I'm telling the. Uh, the lens designer there that uh, my next eyepiece that I want is 120 degrees, you know, and I say it with, without, without flinching, you know, and, and they're like, they look at me and they go, you can't make 120 degree. You can't do that. And I said, I said, what are you talking about? I said, it's already been done. It's been done a long time ago, decades ago. I said, this, this is not going to be a problem. Okay. Well, so they start making, they say, well, can you get a sample? I said, no. And I said, they said, well, can you get some – and I said, no, you're going to have to design this from scratch. And I said, but it's not a big deal. It's already been done. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. So, They've so, been to the moon. It's not a big deal. Just go ahead and do it. Very insistent that they give me these samples on, on this timeline and everything. And so I get back, and I said, you got a sample for me to look at? And they said, yeah. They said, we don't think you're going to like it. And so I get it. And, Tim, it was horrible. Uh, the first the – first, the first one was absolutely horrible, and you know uh, every um, um, in, you know defect you can possibly imagine an eyepiece having. This one had it. Okay, so I said, you know, I looked at it and I said, why are you guys even showing this to me? I said, come on, you know. So uh, round two. Now they are there is I can't remember how many elements right off the top of my head. It's like twelve or thirteen elements in there, which means that they're having to make twenty plus tools <sighs> to make a sample. Okay, so uh, and tooling's expensive. Yes, uh, and so so I reject that. They have to throw away all those tools. Okay, uh, then then we get to round two. It's bad again. All right, D in a different way. They have to reject all those tools. We go to round three, and I'm just I'm really pounding on them. I just go, come on, you know, this is ridiculous, you know, and uh, round three doesn't make it. Uh. And so I come back and I say, look, it's, 
you're way past your deadlines on this and everything. And they say, okay, well, you know, we've got one more sample for you to look at. And they're really nervous that I'm not going to like this. <laughs> and I look through it, Tim, and uh, it is a true 120-degree apparent field. Flat, the to the, flat to the edges? Sharp to the edges, okay. okay. Sharp to the edges. Um, it does still have, like, some feeling of curvature like a lot of hyper-white eyepieces right. do. Um, but uh, I use that eyepiece uh, when I when I got the sample. I go, I said, okay, I think this is going to work. And what I do when I get a new eyepiece line is I'll take it out to star parties. I'll usually take the prototype sample with me, and I start using it on diff- various telescopes. I used it on a on a, a Tech 180, mm-hmm. and the stars look like it looked like black velvet. With with salt with salt grains to the very edge of the field of view. Really, I was so happy. I had you know I was almost about to cry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is at the Okie Tech Star Party. This is a few years ago. Okay. Then I take it to there's guys with big dobs, big fast dobs, and stuff like that. I think the the most memorable view was looking at a star cluster through the Tech 180, and then looking at a um, I think it was like a 32 inch f4 something like that, uh, big dog, and looking at the dumbbell. And the dumbbell looked like it was hovering in front of you. And I, it's like you could just go out and reach out and, and hug it, you know? Fantastic. And so it's it's a great eyepiece, I think, from that standpoint. really uh, showed what the company could do as far as eyepiece design. So we continue to expand on eyepieces. I love, I love the... Uh, working on eyepieces and visual astronomy. Um, you know, uh, when, I, when I'm asked about our competition, though, I, I admire my competition mm-hmm. when they do something really great. And, um, you know, Teleview, for example, is a company that does incredibly beautiful work. Um, uh, uh, you know, the Pentax eyepieces, the Nikon eyepieces that came out, right. you know, that type of thing. So. Now, for telescopes, you guys make refractors, reflectors, schmickass, yeah. or yeah, we don't do schmickass. We do uh, we do apos. Okay. Um, we're about to uh, show our new FPL fifty three line here in the United States. We've had it in Europe for a little while, uh, kind of a test market for it. Um, but uh, we are uh, about to show some of the first FPL fifty three. Line. So there's a you know 140 millimeter uh, uh, aperture that will be probably coming out first. What, uh, what range of apertures do you have for the various telescopes? It's a it, 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 140. Um, there is a 165, and then there's a there's another aperture that we're working on as well. So okay. Mm-hmm. But they're a little bit faster than the current uh, line that I've had. So we first start out with like FCD one. Hoya glass. Then we move to FCD 100, which is currently out now. Um, you know, having used, looked through a lot of refractors, you know, before it was like looking through Schmidt gas grains all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's looking through refractors. And, you know, oh, you I, stepped I, up. I, Good job. I like that. <laughs> it's just that the image through a refractor, I mean, even a deep sky object looks like it's etched out of crystal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so beautiful to look at, you know, and, uh, um, but, you know, I appreciate all kinds of telescopes. You know, I started on an old Coulter Odyssey back in the 80s. Oh, my goodness. Loved that telescope. 
saw lots and lots and lots of stuff, and I still love looking through Newtonians. Uh, a great view through a Schmitt-Cassegrain, I still love that. Yep. You know, so I love amateur telescopes, professional telescopes, toy telescopes. If it's a telescope, I like it very much. <laughs> That's great. Now, we're recording this about three weeks before the great total solar eclipse of 2017. Right. How's business? Oh, my God, crazy. Um, we, you know, we don't make solar telescopes, but what we did is we decided to uh, offer eclipse glasses. Um, we uh, uh, developed some very inexpensive uh, refractors. We have a little 50-millimeter uh, white light solar telescope, and we have a 70-millimeter white light solar telescope. Uh, we did a very limited run of binoculars, uh, but concentrated on eclipse glasses mostly. We sold roughly 5 million eclipse glasses this year. Oh, goodness. Yeah, we're really tired. So. <laughs> we're really tired. Yeah. <laughs> we're really tired. And it's not over. It's not over, right? You know, I, we, have, we also have, uh, certainly we have our value dealers. Um, uh, we also deal with mass markets. So we sold this year to Kroger stores, for example. They oh. bought... 2.8 million eclipse glasses. They, um, Toys R Us bought eclipse glasses from us. Um, uh, you know, uh, Amazon is selling our eclipse glasses. We have eclipse glasses being sold with our specialty stores. You know, OPT bought them, Astronomics bought them, High Point bought them, uh, just to name a few of those guys. You know, so uh, virtually all of the specialty dealers that you'll see on our website have, have bought something from us for the eclipse. Um, uh, Woodland Hills bought a lot as well. So, uh, but uh, Pilot gas stations bought from us. Seven uh, <laughs> Eleven bought from us. Um, you know, so it's just. Uh, uh, I was asked um, an interesting point about this. You know, we can get maybe talk a little bit about uh, solar safety. You know, solar filtration sure. safety. Um, you know the. Uh, uh, there was a lot of uh, talk about what what is a safe solar filter, and there's kind of been a new standard uh, that was introduced just a few years ago, which was the uh, ISO. Uh, let me see if I can find that. Is the ISO twelve one two three one two dash two rating? Okay, and um, uh, the American Astronomical Society made a big deal about this. So did NASA. Uh, of course, we want everyone and, uh, to have safe solar filtered uh, viewing. Uh, but uh, uh, there's been some great, uh, you know, great videos out there. Celestron put out a wonderful video on how to safely use eclipse filters, uh, eclipse glasses. You know, making sure you don't use an eclipse, use eclipse glasses to, use, to look through unfiltered telescopes. That inspired me to shoot a video where I actually showed exactly what happens, you know, I mean, it instantly, a telescope will instantly fry eclipse glasses. So, right. you know, you always want to have over-the-lens over solar filters. But um, the American Astronomical Society did put up uh, a list of reputable um, eclipse glass and solar filter vendors. And uh, we, we source all of our filter material from Thousand Oaks Optical. It does meet that okay. highest standard. But we went out because we're selling the mass market. They make you, you know, if you make a claim, they make you go and independently test it with a third-party certified testing facility. And so we had to go out and do that. And um, uh, unfortunately, we have heard from the American Astronomical Society 
is they got wind that there is uh, counterfeit eclipse glasses out there. Um, so there was somebody, some who knows who, but uh, not using very good solar filter material, not ISO rate this ISO rated material, but uh, putting the labels and branding them, even branding them. Uh, this, the other reputable brands and that type of thing. So the American Astronomical Society has made a very careful list of reputable firms. We are on that list. Um, and so if you go on their, their eclipse.aas.org uh, and start looking for uh, solar filter and eclipse glass uh, reputable um, companies, you'll see us listed. Well, that's great information. So we want you to be safe, you know. So. Appreciate it. How does this, you were with me back in the 80s, right? Yeah. During the Halley's Comet. How does this compare, like, sales-wise? Well, I was I was with OPT oh, okay. during the actual uh, apparition of the comet. Um, but I got to, you know, I come in in 1986, October of 1986, right after the comet, had uh, the aftermath of the comet. Uh, and uh, it was relatively quiet at Mead at that time. You know, I mean, uh, Mead um, had uh, a period of some months where very few calls came in and all the rest of it, but what was coming in were returns mm. from some uh, department stores and stuff like that that Mead had sold to, and so I was handling tons of returns uh, from that time, and... Um, uh, certainly I got to learn, you know, I could look in their system and see what sales were like and all of that. And so it was a very uh, amazing time. But guess what? There was no Internet back then, right? right? So there wasn't instant messaging around the world. We couldn't send images anywhere we wanted to, you know, right after they were taken. Um, you know, so this kind of, you know, the development of the Internet has made it so an event like this, is uh, really a monster event, you know. So uh, while I would say that Halley's Comet was great, it certainly helped build companies like Mead Instruments and Celestron and some other companies too, you know. Uh, and we glowingly remembered for a long time the Halley's Comet era, uh, but then came the Mars opposition, right. you know, closest Mars had been in 60,000 years. And we had... Um, we had amateur astronomers. I remember that, that at, at Irvine Valley College, which was right across from Mead Instruments, two amateur astronomers put out an email uh, saying that they would be set up with telescopes and anybody who wanted to come and visit and, and look through their telescopes could. Uh, thousands of people showed up for those two guys. And... Um, uh, Irvine, uh, the city of Irvine Police Department had to come out and direct traffic. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Now, I heard about that all over the place, okay, and I was going, well, this 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 event definitely trumps Halley's Comet. It trumped Hale-Bopp. It trumped Hayakotaki, okay? Yeah. Uh, and I thought, well, that that is the... That is the the the, the you know, 800-pound gorilla of all astronomical events, Okay. Uh, well, the total eclipse of the sun will trump all of that. It will probably be bigger than all of those events combined. Really? Yes. We, because you have you have a population of 300 million people that live in, within one day's drive That's of right. the path of totality. Okay? We have uh, the news media has already been picking up on it. 
you know, I've already been interviewed by the Wall Street Journal, for example. Um, but uh, NASA is going to be doing a, a feed, you know. Right. Uh, we'll be at, in Casper, Wyoming. Okay, uh, for the Astrocon there? Yeah, we're going to do – we'll do Alcon. Uh, but after that, we're meeting up with um, the Exploratorium group, and we'll be there to kind of uh, offer some support as backup, uh, you know, platforms and that kind of thing. They certainly know how to do an eclipse, but, um, uh, you know, they've done some NASA feeds themselves, and uh, they'll be doing this, their similar program. I'm not sure if it's with NASA or not, but uh, uh, they will be doing a live uh, uh, uh internet feed of, of what uh, the eclipse is like, you know, so, and this is happening uh, across, you know, coast to coast, so the last time we had a coast to coast total eclipse of the sun was in, on June 8th, 1918, you know, mm-hmm. and so what was technology like back in 1918, well, geez, you know, uh, compared to now, um, it is, uh, you know, Lou Mayo from NASA said this will be the greatest uh, science event in human history. Wow. Yeah, it's it's going to be intense. I'm not looking forward to the traffic. <laughs> I'm driving I'm driving up to Madras, Oregon, and I'm, I keep thinking I'll leave a day earlier, maybe a day earlier, just to get up there. It's, I would say go a day earlier, whatever day you pick, go a day earlier that, than that. that. That's a good uh, I think both of us. I, I'm sure you saw the uh, uh, some articles uh, saying that there will be a highway patrol. Uh, officers are expecting around population centers at least hurricane evacuation like traffic yeah you know well, and during the eclipse people on the freeway will stop their car get out of the car and look at the eclipse stop and look at the eclipse it's going to be on dirt roads it's going to be on you know wherever they are you know the people are going to be pulled off because uh there's no hotels to rent anymore right no, or no. Very- I, I looked i looked a year and a half ago and they wanted 600 bucks a night minimum two nights four days in Right, so no, no, um, I don't think so. <laughs> it's crazy, you know. And so there were there were things like um, well, Airbnb, uh, yeah. you know. And I can't remember where it was that I saw this, but Airbnb is going for two thousand dollars a night, two thousand eight thousand bucks a night right. uh, for a house that's on the path of totality. Um, so state parks are are largely filled. Right. So. You know, if you're going, if you if you're thinking, well, gosh, you know, right now, I'm hearing about, I'm listening to this podcast, and I want to go to this eclipse. Uh, like, <laughs> you better call relatives that might live on the path, or you might drive to a place where that's on the path, but you're going to be pulling off the side of the road, maybe sleeping in your car. Yep. Okay. Uh, uh, it is advisable. I, I'm hearing advisories to bring 24 to 72 hours worth of provisions, you know, water, food, uh, that kind of thing. If you can think of all hotels being rented, uh, well, maybe all restaurants might be, you know, uh, full or, you know, f- food sources might getting for a couple of days kind of scarce, you know. So, so you can buy your stuff now. Be prepared. Go out there. Uh, take safe solar filtered uh, stuff. Uh, watch the videos on solar uh, filter safety and uh, be prepared and arrive early. So, yeah. Well, Scott, I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, it was a lot of fun to do it with you, Tim. And uh, um, I think you have a great show. And uh, I see that you do it all the time and you've been doing it for a while. And I think that that's 
great. It's a wonderful service also for the ALPO, which is an amazing organization. And uh, how, how old is the ALPO now? Uh, we were founded in 1947. So, Holy smokes. Yeah. yeah. Big so anniversary this year. Yeah, it's awesome. And, uh, uh, you know, if you're thinking about uh, wanting to get into planetary study, hey, you got to join the ALPO. I appreciate that. How can everybody get a hold of you? Uh, they can reach me. Uh, you know, I have a Facebook page. Um, uh, you know, Scott W. Roberts, you'll see me sitting by a Zeiss 12 inch refractor. Okay. Uh, so there's, I, I had to make a public page because uh, my friend page got maxed out at 5,000. Um, uh, I do have some other personal Facebook pages, but they're, I'm closing them out okay. uh, just so I can kind of consolidate that. They can call me. I'll, give, I'll even say my cell phone number out on the, on the World Wide Web here. My mobile phone number is 949-637-9075, and I answer it daytime or nighttime. If I'm awake, you'll get me, okay? okay. Send a text message maybe first. Uh, I'll be happy to answer questions. Um, and uh, they can go to www.explorescientific.com. That's our corporate site. It leads to our USA sites, our, our European site, and our Asian site. Um, and uh, they can come down here to uh, Springdale, Arkansas. We're at 1010 South 48th Street. We've got a showroom. Uh, we have a store. Um, we do events. You can see us at star parties. Uh, come and see us in Casper, Wyoming for the eclipse. So. Sounds good. All right, Scott. Thanks a lot for coming on. Damn, take care. Right. Thanks. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I really want to thank our special guest, guest today, Scott Roberts, for coming on and talking about telescopes. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud. The link is in the show notes. We're also available on Google Play and Stitcher. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel so generous to give $35 a month, you'll receive one year's membership to the ALPO and be the producer on the podcast. With that, I want to thank our producer of this podcast, Steve Seidentop, for his generous support of the Observer's Notebook. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is available in the show notes. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at at timrobertson56. If you're interested in joining the ALPO, membership begins at only $14 a year. You can find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org. You can also find the ALPO on Facebook by searching ALPO Astronomy, and this podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. Again, the ALPO is an international organization devoted to the study of the sun, moon, planets, asteroids, meteors, and comets. Our goals are to stimulate, coordinate, and generally promote the study of these bodies using methods and instruments that are available within the communities of both amateur and professional astronomers. Until next time, my hope is that you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening. <laughs>